Morning, everyone. Well, I've been expressing for a while now my excitement and anticipation to begin this study in the book of Ephesians. So here we are. If you take your Bibles and open them to Ephesians chapter 1, um, typically, as many of you are aware, whenever we start a new book, in the past, whether it was Philippians or Malachi, I like to do somewhat of an overview of that book, kind of to set the tone and the context. I think it's highly helpful for us as we dive into the exposition of that book. So, hence, the title of today's message is An Overview of Ephesians. Now, Um, A little contrary to the way I would normally do an introduction, this will be a little different too as well. But once again, we need to set the historical context of this book. And I think it will help us make connections throughout our study. First and foremost, interpretive connections, which are the most important thing as we look to rightly divide the word of truth Not to mention also some interesting connections from a cultural standpoint too as well. The culture in which we live in. With that said, let's begin by briefly examining this region and this city from a regional or cultural perspective. Ephesus was perhaps more along the lines of the third biggest city in the Roman Empire during this time. Really only the the city of Rome or Alexandria were bigger than Ephesus. Located in current day Turkey. Hence, much of this success in this region was very much on display during that time along with the prestige of the city and its success being as big as and influential as it was, it was very pluralistic in its culture. That to say that uh, a belief or uh, understanding of many gods, we might say, um, almost as if they were okay with this too as well, if I could frame it in that way. From a pluralistic standpoint, perhaps when it comes to these many gods, none were more influential in this region than the god that they deemed by the name of Artemis. She was referred to as the Queen of Heaven. In Acts chapter 19, we see her referenced five separate times. There was a belief that she had power over spirits and fate itself. And we'll see along the way a little bit today and as we progress through the study that it was this type of context that also opened the door for an unhealthy belief in the supernatural or magic, especially outside of the bounds of Scripture. Moreover, along with that context... We clearly see and understand from a variety of sources that there was a a cultural tension between Jew 
and Gentiles as well. We have several sources that speak to this, one in particular being the Jewish historian by the name of Josephus, who wrote about a large Jewish community within this region, not to mention Scripture itself. As we unpack this letter, we'll see as a secondary theme, not the primary, but as a secondary theme, Paul referenced this word, the mystery. And that theme is that this mystery has now been revealed. As we see that even in today's message, we'll see that this clearly reveals a friction that was prevalent between Jewish and Gentile believers. And then one more important contextual point to make, given the fact of this region being a a large, successful, influential part of the Roman Empire, there was also a large contingent of the Roman ruler cult, we might refer to it as. You guys have heard me speak of this before, this idea that Caesar is Lord. Contrast that to the Christian message that Christ is Lord. All of these things combine together in order to create this unique situation that we have here in this letter that Paul wrote to the church at Ephesus. That said, I want you to turn over to Acts chapter 19. And I want us also to briefly explore the birth of this church as well as its regional and cultural context. Following its inception in Acts chapter 18 with the Apostle Paul and, and Priscilla and Aquila, we begin to see some of the dots of even the context that I just laid out start to come to fruition in Acts chapter 19. Let me read verses 19 and 20. And many of those who practice magic brought their books together and began burning them in the sight of everyone. And they counted up the price of them and found it 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord was growing mightily and prevailing. Praise the Lord. As God's word was going forth and in this context of as I mentioned, an unhealthy belief in the supernatural or magic. Many people that were being converted were bringing these books of magic and burning them, saying, we want them no more. We want the word of God. Unfortunately, though, as is typically the case, as the word of God goes forth, as the gospel progresses forward, Satan's typically not far behind in his attempts to deter that message. Throughout the rest of chapter 19, we see much confusion, we see debate, and we see anger on display for those who are resisting that message. So much so that a great uproar transpires. Look a little further down in chapter 19 at verse 28. We hear the word of God read, When they heard this and were filled with rage, 
they began crying out saying, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Now, this is clearly, unfortunately, the resistance to God's message that was going forth as people dug their heels in, if you will, to say, no, Artemis is great. Don't give us this message of truth. We see resistance to the message of truth and we'll continue to see it for eternity until we head home. Maybe I should back up and say for the time and frame before eternity. That said, when preparing the depart from this church plant, listen to Paul's instructions. Look over in chapter 20, verses 28 through 30. As he's laid the groundwork for this church and experienced the resistance along the way, now he's departing and and leaving the reins with his young disciple Timothy, And he writes this to the elders of the church in verses 28 through 30 of Acts 20. Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock, among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among them, your own selves, men will arise speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. Now, it's interesting to note that in Scripture, we actually see Paul's concern come to fruition in his letter to his Young disciple, Timothy. You don't need to turn there. But in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, Paul writes, As I urged you upon my departure for Macedonia, remain on at Ephesus, so that you may instruct men not to teach strange doctrines, nor pay attention to the myths and endless genealogy which give rise to mere speculation. So even after his writing of this letter, he's addressing Timothy, and we'll see more of how this church actually responds. We even see the historical account of that, and we'll get there. But even in the conclusion of Paul's letter to Timothy, in chapter 1, he identifies elders within the church that had fallen in. To this trap. So much so that he even has to call them out by name. In verses 18 through 20 of 1 Timothy chapter 1, he says, This command I entrust to you, Timothy, my son, in accordance with the prophecies previously made concerning you, that by them you fight the good fight, keeping faith and a good conscience, which some have rejected and suffered shipwreck. In regard to their faith, among these are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, so that they will be taught not to blaspheme. Hmm. Unfortunate. But it had to be addressed 
for Paul to guard this church and charge these members, these elders, these leaders within the church. Be on guard. There's even men amongst yourself who are rising up as savage wolves. It was with these circumstances in place that several years later, around A.D. 60, Paul writes this letter to the church at Ephesus. Now, one thing I think is fascinating to ponder, especially given our own culture. If someone was in the context of a situation such as this in our day and age, what do we think individuals might encourage someone to communicate to a church in similar circumstances? Maybe it might be the next best method for church growth. Or the next best seminar for how you're to make your people feel comfortable. There's tension in your, your church here. There's a little things going astray. Let's make them feel comfortable. Or perhaps the message would be that we need to communicate the softest and easiest approach of peace at all costs. I think that would probably, in most cases, unfortunately, be the message that we would hear in today's day and age. But what Paul believed this church in Ephesus needed, I believe wholeheartedly, is exactly what the universal church even today needs now more than ever. And has always needed, for that matter. Think of some of the similar circumstances we face. You could definitely argue on some level that the church as a whole is somewhat pluralistic. Maybe we're not embracing the Artemis of the day. And when I say we're, you guys remember, I'm speaking of general terms here. The universal church. But we definitely are fighting against false idols and ideologies that are vying for the attention of the church or the acceptance of the church, a church that more and more becomes watered down to accept a wide array of contradictory teachings outside of the bounds of Scripture. You could also argue, I would say, that perhaps our magic of the day is an increasingly more naive approach, even in the way we communicate when it comes to the supernatural outside of Scripture, i.e., God told me, I feel the Holy Spirit telling me. If we follow that type of communication, even to its logical conclusion, it means the scripture, the canon of scripture is still open and God is authoritatively speaking. No, he is not. He speaks through his word in these last days as Hebrews 1 communicates. Nor are we to add or subtract to that message as Revelation communicates. Or... Maybe it's the prestige and success of our day. We have access to a lot of successful things. If Ephesus was this booming 
successful region and city in some respects. We are blessed with that, but also suffer from that. Somewhat of an attitude uh, within some circles of the universal church that I'm the captain of my own ship. If I set my mind to it, I can succeed in my own strength in and of myself. Nonetheless, if our need is what Ephesus needed, what can we expect from the book of Ephesians? And that is the question that I want to answer for us here this morning. I want to present three expectations for us as we consider where we're going in this epistle. Three expectations that I hope whet your appetite and increase your expectancy and anticipation for what God's going to do to do with you, brother and sister in Christ, and our church as a whole. I believe wholeheartedly. You're going to find this book extremely rich with deep, Deep and deeper waters of spiritual instruction. But you're also going to find it immensely practical in life application. Two reasons why I think that this study is going to be so fruitful for us as a church. With that said, Would you stand with me, please? I want to read, and your Bibles are probably still in Acts, so you can turn back to Ephesians. I want to read just two verses today as we set the tone for the overview. Two verses that encapsulate what I just mentioned, this deep, deep spiritual instruction that is in store for us, but also immense practical life application. I'll read chapter 1, verse 3, and chapter 4, verse 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Bless the Lord. Turn over to chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore, I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. Amen. You may be seated. Excited. All right, our first expectation for this study as a whole is number one, doctrine and theology. Now, those two words, unfortunately, in some circles, at the least, are referred to as not important. At the worst, referred to as harmful 
when it comes to church life. How should the Christian respond to charges such as that? Pastor and writer Al Mohler would answer as follows, and I quote, When a denomination begins to consider doctrine divisive, theology troublesome, and convictions inconvenient, consider that denomination on its way to a well-deserved death. Powerful quote, one that I would firmly agree with, reason I used it. Let's go back a couple centuries, though, to the great prince of preachers, Charles Spurgeon. He said, and I quote, Nothing makes a man so virtuous as belief of the truth. A lying doctrine will soon beget a lying practice. A man cannot have an erroneous belief, a false belief, without by and by having an erroneous life. I believe the one thing naturally begets the other. Perfectly said from Spurgeon himself. The one thing begets the other. Now, great men of God, we could quote all day long, and many of them have served the test of time and are great men of God, but they're men. What about the Scriptures? I'll share just one with you, but it seals the deal. Listen to some of Paul's last words to his young disciple Timothy again. Think of that. His last words, as he knew he was ending his time here on earth, this is what he communicates, inspired by the Spirit of God to Timothy. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1-3 through reads, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires. So, and Paul's desire for his last words to be lasting words, he communicates to Timothy, preach the word, brother, And do it with sound doctrine. Lasting words indeed. One thing is certain concerning Paul. That he was not a hypocrite. And that he would charge or say one thing. And not do what he had charged. In this letter of Ephesians. He'll model through his words of spiritual instruction, exactly what he charged Timothy to do. In our reading of 
chapter 1, verse 3. He begins with an extended, and I emphasize that word extended, description of spiritual blessings in Christ. Even now, as I emphasize that word extended, I'm struggling with how to bring forth this extended description of spiritual blessing as we unpack our exposition. Why is that the case? In the original language, this was 202 words within one sentence. An exuberant description of praise, blessing, and doctrine like no other. Was it a sentence to tickle ears with soft, watered-down, comfortable, feel-good preaching? Far from it. It is some of, in verses 3 through 14, the richest, grandest, loftiest, most monumental words in all of Scripture concerning doctrine and theology. As for that doctrine and theology, we'll see a great deal along the way. That said, I want us to remember two words as we explore this letter. Those two words are more than likely the greatest and primary theme that Paul intended to communicate in this letter. Those words are simply in Christ or in him those two words combined in Christ or in him Paul uses over 20 times throughout the entire letter that said concerning the significance of how this frames even our interpretive framework of how we rightly divide this letter as we work our way through I want us to see just a couple of them here in this overview message. Look again at the beginning of those 202 words in one sentence in chapter 1, verse 3. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Turn over in chapter 2, verse 10. Continuing this primary theme of in Christ and the significance behind it. Chapter 2, verse 10 reads, For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. In Christ Jesus. These works he prepared beforehand. Over in chapter 3, verse 11, he says, This was in accordance with the eternal purpose which he carried out in Christ Jesus our Lord. And then one other very well-known verse. Chapter 4, verse 32 reads, be kind to one another, 
tenderhearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ has also forgiven you. So, don't forget as we work our way through this entire letter, those two words, in Christ, in Him. It will be vital for us from an interpretive standpoint and having an understanding of the original meaning to the original audience and then henceforth how we go forward and apply that. And back in Acts chapter 20, as we read, Paul warned them to be on guard for the flock. He said after he departs, savage wolves are coming in to attack them, if you will. That said, what did they need? They needed to be reminded of their spiritual blessings in Christ. Spiritual blessings that had nothing to do with the ability or the strength or the power or the might of man. They needed to be reminded of doctrine and theology that at its core is God-centered. In Christ, in Him. Is this not what we see throughout Scripture when it comes to an antidote, if you will, a protection against the wolves and the antichrists that are seeking to lead us astray? Even in our series of 1 John, 2 John, and 3 John, we clearly saw that pride was the root underneath of these wolves and these antichrists. Why do men desire their ears to be tickled? As we read earlier, they desire to accumulate for themselves teachers according to their own desires. And yet, we'll see throughout sound doctrine and theology produces utter humility and grace. It's about in Christ. It's about in Him the strength, the power, the might, the grace that we operate with. What can we expect from Ephesians? We can expect a heavy dose of doctrine and theology. Doctrine and theology that magnifies and exalts the Lord Jesus Christ. A salvation that belongs to the Lord alone. Doctrine and theology that at times will certainly challenge our finite human minds. What would we expect? As Isaiah says, our ways are not his ways. Our thoughts are not his thoughts. As we work our way through some of these monumental aspects of doctrine and theology, whether it is the doctrine of divine election. Redemption, total depravity, 
our own sanctification or the providence of God? Would we be driven to understand the Scriptures, to embrace the Scriptures as they're plainly taught with humility and submission to the Word of God as He clearly communicates. And we'll see that as we work our way through. Would we resolve to grow in our love for doctrine and theology? This is exactly what Theology is, but nothing more than the study of God. Who among us does not desire to know God more? To use the words from Paul in the letter to Philippians, to know Him more, that surpassing value of knowing Him more. I know the brothers and sisters in Christ that are in this room desire to know him more. That being said, we should desire to love and embrace doctrine and theology. You see, I'll promise you this. When you grow in your love for doctrine and theology... You can't help but grow in your love first and foremost for God. And most certainly your love for your brothers and your sisters in Christ. And even in your love for the lost as you desire to proclaim the good news of the gospel. You'll only grow in these aspects. To see that, look over at chapter 3. Verses 16 through 19 as we set the stage for our second expectation. Chapter 3, I'll read verses 16 through 19. Paul says, That he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And that you being rooted and grounded in love. May be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth. And to know the love of Christ. Which surpasses knowledge that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. What a glorious result that doctrine and theology produces. And that is the perfect segue for our second expectation. If we can expect a heavy dose of doctrine and theology in the letter to Ephesians, we can also expect, number two, love and unity. It's interesting. I mentioned this. But we actually know how this church responded to this letter. Some nearly 30 years after Paul writing his letter to the church at Ephesus, we have the account from the Apostle John in the book of Revelation, chapter 2, verses 2 through 4, as he writes to this city, Ephesus. Listen 
to how they responded. This clearly shows where they were some 30 years after Paul's letter to Ephesus. John writes, I know your deeds and your toil and perseverance and that you cannot tolerate evil men. Good job, Ephesus. Remember, Hymenaeus, Alexander were in that church. Evil men, savage wolves were infiltrating the church. And John says, you cannot tolerate them. Good job. He goes on to say, and you put to test those who call themselves apostles, and they are not. And you found them to be false. Checkbox. And you have perseverance and you have endured for my name's sake. Boy, it sounds really good, doesn't it? And it is good up until this point. You have not grown weary. Man, they're doing a good job. But I have this against you. That you have left your first love. So unfortunate. Doctrine and theology, let me say, again, must never be neglected. But it cannot be devoid of love. We'll see even in chapter 4, verse 15 of this letter, Paul says, speak truth in love. You see, this is essential for us to grasp, beloved, when it comes to this fruit of what a love for doctrine and theology produces. Look again at chapter 3, verse 19. I want to read that one again and focus on one word. 3.19 reads, And to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge that you may be filled up to the fullness of God. This word surpasses. Paul uses it two other times before he gets to it here in chapter 3 verse 19. Listen to these two previous usages. One chapter 1 verse 19 reads, In what is the surpassing greatness of His power towards us who believe that is in accordance with the working of the strength of His might. Or in chapter 2, verse 7, He says, So that in the ages to come, He might show the surpassing riches of His grace and kindness towards us in Christ. Jesus. Combine combine those two usages of surpasses with his usage of it here in 318. With the breadth, the length, the height, the depth. This is all about communicating the immensity of God's love for his people. And yet Paul writes in order that we might have a glimpse of it, in order for that Ephesus might have a glimpse 
of it. To step behind the curtain, so to speak, and to see a divine and sovereign love that was purposed before time began on his people. This, my friends, is all about an enhanced worship, an enhanced submission to the God in whom loved us when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, as we'll see in chapter 2. So, if we can expect, certainly, the vertical aspect of our love, His love for us, and our love for Him to be strengthened and enhanced through this letter, you better believe the horizontal cannot help but be strengthened as well. Think of this, even given the, the cultural context that I mentioned previously and the tension between Jews and Gentiles. I mentioned that secondary theme of the mystery being revealed. This mystery that is revealed is one which indeed created an incredible opportunity for increased horizontal love between Jew and Gentile within the original audience. Look at chapter 3, verses 4 through 6. Considering this love and this unity that we can expect to glean from a study such as this. Chapter 3, verses 4 through 6, read, By referring to this, when you read, you can understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which in other generations was not made known to the sons of men, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets in the Spirit. Here he defines it. To be specific, that the Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body, and fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. We clearly can see the perfect and providential application for the audience of that day in a message such as this. Jew and Gentile, which had tension, but now understand our fellow partakers in this gospel together. Nevertheless, it's this type of doctrinal principle that will continue to provide a perfect, providential blessing and provision for us here even in our church age. Look over at chapter 2. Verses 13 and 14, Paul says the following as I connect this dot for us and what we can expect concerning the dividing wall between Jew and Gentile in the original audience. Chapter 2, verse 13 and 14 read, But now in Christ Jesus, you who were formerly far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, 
who made both groups into one, broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so that in himself he might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace. Hopefully, we can expect through this study to grow in our love and tolerance for brothers and sisters in Christ. In the same way that Paul urged this church to avoid the dividing wall of ethnicity or the law itself, we too, from a principal perspective, can be driven to see our brothers and sisters as image bearers of God, despite any of our differences, ethnicity, personality, whatever it may be. We are image bearers, fellow partakers in this glorious gospel in which we've been called in chapter 4. Verses 1 through 4, we see this commitment for love and for unity within that church and which hopefully would be a challenge and a charge for us as well. I'll read verses 1 through 4 of chapter 4. Paul writes, Therefore, I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is but one body, And one spirit, just as also you were called in one hope of your calling. So, if doctrine and theology inevitably produces love and unity, we might say they all together combine to complete another need for the church at Ephesus, or for that matter, any church. What is that need? It's exactly what we just read and how I set the tone in our initial reading of two verses. Paul says to walk in a manner worthy of the calling. That, that key word, walk. To walk in a manner worthy of the calling. What is faith without works? What is doctrine and theology And love for God without life application. It's this principle which provides our third and final expectation for this study as a whole. And that's number three. Life application. Look again at chapter 4 verse 1. You see that very first word. A key connecting word. He says, therefore, I implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling. 
This is a clear transitional word. Where the first three chapters of Ephesians focuses much on doctrine and theology. The final three chapters of Ephesians focuses much on life application. John MacArthur commonly refers to this delineation that you see in much of Paul's writing as the distinction between doctrine and duty. Doctrine and duty. You see, at the end of the day, God's Word is not designed to just create theological minds. It's designed to create, yes, a theological mind. A mind that desires to rightly divide the Word of truth. But it's also designed to create a life that follows suit. In all honesty, in all reality... A life that does not follow suit, no matter how theologically minded or gifted or talented one is, is not a Christian. We just finished 1 John, did we not? Children of God practice righteousness. We don't study God to puff up our pride. We study and we love God in order that he might transform and renew our minds. That we might present our bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to him. Now, as we look to close... I want to go back to that Spurgeon quote on the importance of doctrine and theology on the front end, but there's one sentence I want to repeat. He says, A man cannot have erroneous or false belief without by and by having an erroneous life. Do you see it even in his words there? He's implicitly insinuating that on the flip side of that coin, good doctrine produces good life application. As for Paul's instruction throughout, we'll see him cover a variety of topics which I'm eagerly Excited to get to. Topics such as communication. A big one. Not just for marriages, but for people in general. Relationships. Marriage. Some of you are, even in the room, familiar with some of that as we discuss premarital counseling. And heavily looking at this letter of Ephesians for Advice on marriage. Parenting. Workforce. The workforce. Yes, God's word speaks directly to managers as well as employees. 
spiritual warfare. We could go on and on and on. There's several more that we'll touch on and will be highly useful and fruitful for us as we work our way through. You see, it's not just Paul and his writings. It's all throughout Scripture. A high and lofty view of God cannot help but produce a life that desires to run for Christ, to live for Christ, to walk in a manner worthy of the calling. A life that understands in Christ, let us not forget those two words, the power, the grace, and the humility behind our motivation is what guides us to please Him. To live a life worthy of the call. So, I hope you're just as excited as I am to dive in to this study of the book of Ephesians for multiple reasons that we've just expressed. More importantly, that we would grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord, that we would glorify Him in all that we do, and that He would sanctify us in the truth, His Word, which is truth. Let's pray even now that that's what God would do in this study for you, brother, for you, sister, and for this church as a whole. Pray with me. Dear Lord, we thank you, Jesus, for your precious word, that word that at times challenges us. But yet, O oh God, we know that the kindness and mercy of God is often used to lead us to repentance. Lord, would you create in us a hunger and a thirst and an anticipation and an excitement and a submission to your word as we hear the great truths of God which build us up and the reasons for why we defend the truth that we so hold to and love but also truths that cause us to walk in works that were prepared beforehand in Christ for your honor and for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.